0: Welcome to Ling Time Chat, episode something or other, 20 something or other, 22, 23. Whatever it is, welcome. Mm-hmm. And this podcast is going to be released on uh, January 1st. So welcome to 2022.
1: Well, I suppose it is. Did you want to say when, it's, when it was recorded?
0: In 2021.
1: It sure was.
0: <laughs> what this- day of
1: 2021? Dunny Day?
0: It's, you know, the 31st, we wanted to, to end the year with laying time. And so, you know, stream yesterday, record podcast today, have it go live tomorrow. Sounds good. (laughs) Totally there. (laughs) All right. So today, Mm -hmm. um, I actually got a message. So not only is this being recorded on the last day, um, of the year, yeah. That we last possible day we could be recording it, Um, but we didn't really settle on a topic until this morning when I was um, I received a message from one of our patrons um, who is uh, is working toward doing um, graduate level work in linguistics, and um, the question that they posed was um, how you know what you're going to you know focus on in grad school because you know at the graduate level you have to write whether you're writing a thesis or a dissertation it does need to be focused on some area of linguistics and so you end up specializing and I'm doing air quotes around the word specializing which you can't see but maybe you could hear the way I I did that intonation Um, because just because you like claim an area of linguistics or a specialization within linguistics, that doesn't mean that you don't do other things. So anyway, but it was a question about like, how do you know what to specialize in? And so super curious, because obviously we specialized in very different things when we did our degrees. Um, How did you land in your area? What what was your driving decision-making process?
1: So that was how you decided that this podcast was going to go, <laughs> because I felt like it was going to go the opposite way, given that I didn't make it for graduate school to specialize.
0: <laughs> but like you did a thesis.
1: I, I did a master's. Yeah. Well, um, let's let's describe that process, because uh, yeah, I think it's different for different schools. Um, and so um, sure. I'll describe how, how that one was for ours. Uh, for us, we. Um, The master's level thesis was called the comps paper. And I don't know what that stands for you.
0: Comprehensive exam.
1: That's that sounds about right. That sounds about right.
0: What comp stands for really in the grad school programs. It's a comprehensive exam or paper. It's to test your your overall skills. And usually it's a thesis is often a mini dissertation. And so like you can take your thesis and make it a chapter of a dissertation. And so it is specialized. So even though maybe you don't claim you specialized in an area, you did have to decide what area you were going to be focusing on for that
1: paper. Oh, right, right, right. No, but like um, specifically the, um, the comps paper that I did was in an area that I did not want to specialize in. And i did that on purpose and a lot of people in the program did because um effectively the way that the the ucsd program was um, put together was you wrote two comps papers you were running one at the end of your second year and then you wrote another one at the end of your third year or maybe it was fourth year um and then you took one of those papers and turned it into a qualifying paper and then took your qualifying paper and turned it into a dissertation. Mm-hmm. The two comps papers had to be from two entirely separate subfields of linguistics. Interesting. Yeah. That was uh, looking back on it. That's my take on it as well. Hmm. Interesting. Now, mm-hmm. It's And so the result of it was that a lot of people decided, well, I don't want to start work essentially on my dissertation and then set it aside for a year and work on something totally different that I don't really care about. Fair point. And so a lot of people like me did uh, a comps paper on something that they were just going to do it and set it aside. Um, and then so they could spend the rest of their graduate career focusing on their dissertation. Um, as a result, um Uh, So when I was in uh, undergraduate, there were a lot of things I enjoyed and then there were a lot of things that I was good at. Um, And then sometimes those things overlapped, sometimes, you know, they didn't overlap. Um, And one of the things that I kind of enjoyed uh, and was good at, it was definitely not my passion, like not by any stretch of the imagination, but I was good at it and I found it interesting was phonetics. Um, And so I decided to do my first comps paper in phonetics uh, and do a phonetics experiment. Um, and, you know, it went, it went mostly well. Um, I think I was, um, probably what you, if you looked at it, I was probably an average graduate student. Um, so I, I didn't pass, um, the first round, uh, I think, and the average graduate student doesn't, I think. I didn't pass the first round, so it was like uh, I had to take it back and do revisions and then present it again, and then it passed. Um, And so um, for, I think, for the average graduate student, that's what happens. Uh, Better graduate students don't do that. (laughs) But, you know, that was not not what I was going to be. But also, it wasn't something that I was particularly interested in. It wasn't something that I was passionate about. It was something that I could do Um, and so it was something that, that I did and really the only reason I did that was a, I knew I didn't want that to be my dissertation and B, I knew I could do it. Um, and so that's, that's why I did it. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a,
0: so that's an unfortunate, uh, so, okay. So piece of advice, number one, figure out what your program is going to require moving forward before you decide that you're going to focus and write in a particular area if you have a program like that, um, mine was very different. And so like mm-hmm. my experience um, was definitely not what you had and everything <laughs> that we worked on past a certain point um, was just like every paper could be on in an area, in the same area, on the same topic and so on, um, essentially leading up to you know, the full dissertation. Um, And I know that it's also interesting because we use the word dissertation in American universities Mm. for the paper you write for a PhD and a thesis for the master's level. Um, But I also know that that's not how it is worldwide. And so, um, like, for instance, Mm. I know a lot of European universities call the master's thesis a dissertation, and some of them call the PhD paper a thesis. And so it's like, it can be exactly backwards. They may use thesis for the whole thing. They may use dissertation for the whole thing. And so as we're using these terms, I do wanna just make sure with our global audience that as we're talking, um, we're talking, when we use the term thesis, we're talking master's level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we use the term dissertation, we're talking PhD level. And and again, the expectations for American universities, a master's thesis, I think at most universities, um, It's going to widely vary depending on what topic and also just on the particular student, because for instance, I have um, worked on thesis committees at the master's level where, um, you know, some fields expect a 15 to 25 page paper, but then like a huge project to support it that took years in the making. And so the paper is more of a write-up of like this huge other thing. And so like the paper is not the full product it's just I have to write about this other huge project that I did and then you know other fields you see you know master's thesis um, papers being like anywhere from 30 to 100 pages Uh, and so it's like it's it's kind of all over the board and so um, dissertations usually are in the 150 to 250 page range and at least in linguistics I think
1: yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna look mine up too
0: to see how many pages yeah. your master's thesis was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the amount of specialization that goes into it, or like even the programs that require you to say, this is your field. Um, and it, it can be really hard because the, the um, question in particular was, you know, an interest in doing, um, you know, more field methods as a focus. But because the student wasn't going to be doing um, original, you know, field work to support it, they need to have an area they're going to focus on. Um, And honestly, for me, sorry, uh, oh, David's interrupting me to say his was 63 pages. Nicely done. Um, And so um, I think for me, because when I started my graduate work, I had no idea what I was going to specialize in um, or what I was. What avenue I was going to focus on, I guess specialization, I shouldn't say, just like what area I was going to focus on in terms of more coursework. And then, of course, all the the written products that would happen, Um, because I was interested in a lot of things in linguistics. The two areas I really wasn't interested in were phonetics and phonology. That's (laughs) always been the case, still is. Those are my (laughs) least favorite parts um, in terms of studying linguistics. Um, And so like, I knew I wasn't gonna be a phonetician. I knew I wasn't gonna be a phonologist. And so, um, you know, from there, I just took like the required classes for those, but then the other classes, um, I took a wide variety of them um, as electives, just trying to figure out what struck me. And I, to this day, am grateful for one particular class that I took because um, it was an advanced uh, semantics course. So it was at the doctoral level and um in that class we had days where our professor would just be like let's brainstorm ideas for like what your final paper is going to be about to talk topics to talk how does this relate how can we help each other and um one day in particular it was so beautiful boulder you know so many beautiful days we went outside as a class to do this brainstorming so we're sitting you know on the boulder campus at that fountain if you Mm -hmm. you know the fountain by the student center all huddled together by that fountain, you know, throwing ideas around. And my professor had said one project that she always wanted to do, but never had time to do herself. And so she was like, I keep telling students this project and someone's going to end up being interested in it. And it was looking at written quotatives Mm -hmm. and looking at it semantically in terms of like, um, especially in English, we have a wide variety of verbs that can appear there. And so thinking, you know, like, how and why can those verbs appear in those positions um, and whatnot. And so anyway, she said that and I was like, now I know what I'm doing. Cause at that point, like all the way through the class, I still had no idea what I was gonna write on. And I was a little terrified because at the advanced level of semantics, like you get into some deep theory that's like, yeah, terrifying because really... it's like, it's so vague. It's not real. It's all abstract and I don't like the abstract.
1: I really disliked it.
0: (laughs) And so, and so, all that is to say, like, if you had asked me going into graduate school if semantics would be an area I would study, I would say, "Eh," because it was my experience with semantics all the way up until I actually found an area to focus on, um, was very abstract and um, logic based, which I enjoyed the logic part of it, like the formal logic, but like, it didn't make sense to me as what i would do with it for language like you know like, like i enjoyed doing the the problem sets you and enjoyed like the writing and the rules. calculus i enjoy i enjoy many wow. things but that doesn't mean that i really understood how to apply it well to language study and so it's really like that one class changed um you know the focus of what i i did after that um and so, my technical area of specialization or areas rather is um, syntax and semantics. And so, it's like I didn't choose just one. Um, a lot of schools do that, where it's like you don't just choose morphology, it's usually morphosyntax. And you can do the same, obviously, with you know, it's the interface of syntax and semantics, I believe is what we ended up calling it, mm-hmm. whether you call it syntactico semantics or semantic syntax. <laughs> <laughs> There's There are other ways to blend those words, but that ended up being my area of specialization solely based on the fact that my professor gave me this project idea in class. I loved it. I glommed onto it. And after that, I like my class paper was awesome. Um, and I had so much fun working on it that like every paper I wrote after that for the program was on quotatives. And so yeah that's how i found my area was just kind of by chance and so if you have a clear idea of what you want to study now in terms of you know even if you want to do something broader like field work but you know that you're going to have to like pick an area to really focus a paper on that i think the first question is do you already have an area you're super interested in a language you're super interested in writing about um and then if you have either of those are, are already answered then you've got your your area um And if either of those are not fully answered, then experiment. Yeah, Talk to people, brainstorm. Like, I think that's the best way to.
1: I think that um, especially if you look at a macro level, there's three ways of approaching it. There's, uh, and and three types of graduate students. I think those that are interested in um, a specific language or a specific Mm -hmm. language family, Um, those who are interested in a specific, part of theory, mm-hmm. and then those who are interested in specific phenomena, yeah. um, that are more interested in experimentation. Um, and so depending, if you feel like you fit into one of those, then, um, you kind of, there's a, a track you might follow. So for example, a lot of people who, um, come to linguistics because of language study, uh, and in particular, these are the types of people that like, you know, come in and have you know have taken like you know extensive like maybe have majored in a language Um, usually what happens is they come to linguistics and they learn about theory and see which one they're most comfortable with or what area they're most comfortable with Mm -hmm. and then what you do is you go into the literature for the language that you're interested in and see what have people said about this are there any gaps you know like um phonology for example uh, if if you were if you were interested in Turkish, there's been a lot that's written about the phonology of Turkish, and so then what you do is you go and see. All right, are is there anything that doesn't have a lot of literature on it? I mean, obviously there's going to be reams and reams of literature on the um, uh, on the uh, the vowel harmony of Turkish. Uh, how much literature is there on, um, for example, the uh, the the G with a little hat on it? Um, and uh, the way that and the palatalization of velars in Turkish, and then the question is: What's been written has what's been written been accurate? Has there been enough written? Is there something still to say? But it's kind of like if you're really interested in a language, that's your path. It's more like this is where I want to write. What can I write about? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, let's say that you're interested in theory, um, and I think that. Um, if, if I were to have gone on in graduate school, that's where I would have been. I would have been interested in, in morphological theory. Um, and the, the question is, uh, what theories are out there? Where, where do they fail? What do you want to say about theory? Do you have something to propose? And then what language data is, uh, is there that can support you? And in that case, it's not like, I'm interested in the language. It's more like, What's going to help me or what's going to challenge my assumptions here? Um, And there it's more like, you know, reading around the literature, seeing what problem issues exist. Um, For example, like uh, when it comes to a a specific bit of uh, morphological theory that I was interested in, um, a lot of the languages that kept coming up were these, uh, the Sami languages. And the reason that they kept coming up was because um they there were these languages that had their they had suffixes they were very clearly separable easy to tell which one is which and the suffixes were plural case and possession um, and all three of these suffixes could be on a noun in a particular order but if you looked at these languages the orders of them would change so like for the top four cases it was it was like a case plural Possessive. Mm-hmm. Then for the next eight, it was plural case possessive, and then for this bottom four, there were actually variable orders where speakers would accept either. Hmm. And it's like, for have
0: been a really cool quirk of historical development in terms of when the cases were developed. If yep, you can see right there where it's like this came from something else. Like that's really cool. Anyway, go on.
1: Yeah, so that's part of it, and it's the type of thing that is a big challenge. For for example, one of the dominant theories of morphology, which is distributed morphology. It's a big challenge for things like that because it wants to put everything together like syntax and it thinks that there has to be a specific order for all of this stuff. And especially the variability is something that it doesn't want to tolerate. It's not something that should be possible. And so that's why these languages come up a lot in the data. So it's not like anybody's particularly interested or like they had a burning desire to learn these languages. It's just like these are the problem areas, can we, can we push the theory in a way that it better explains what we see?
0: That's actually, um, role in reference grammar, if you're familiar with that, um, the, so it's Van Balen and LaPole.
1: Oh, Van Balen, yeah, yeah. And,
0: Mm -hmm. um, if you pick up what, was lovingly referred to as the red brick in our um, program. Uh, <laughs> if you pick up the RRG book, the the big Cambridge one, it's red, which is why it was called red, and it's very thick, which is why we called it the brick. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of um, the examples throughout the book, you know, they'll explain it with the English examples and whatnot, but a lot of them are from Deerball, and one of the reasons, like they specifically mm. chose Deerball, because it does some really cool things that you know are very quirky and that most theories completely fail to account for and so their reasoning was as we're developing this theory um, if it can handle the deerball examples then we can probably make it work with any other language (laughs) and so like that's how they started but then of course like if as David was saying like if you're really into um, a particular theory and super interested into how it works then um, you know, like you, you just run other languages through it. Like there's so much room for growth in terms of, you know, well, does it work for Polish examples? Does it work for whatever? And, and just, you know, being able to expand the literature in terms of how you could apply it to other languages. Um, and so, yeah, that's totally an area. Now, David is theory-minded. <laughs> I was not, and I still am not. Um, and so for me, um, I knew that I was not going to be focusing on theory at all, and so I wasn't really interested in really diving into any one theory or another. Um, I am data-oriented, and so I knew I'd be collecting a lot of data and looking at it, and because because of my background, I was most comfortable doing English because um, it, it's one of those things where I... You talk about imposter syndrome a lot. Like I was super underconfident in, in trying to study any other language. Cause I'm like, what? Well, what if I mistranslated it? What if I don't understand what it really means? What if I, and so I was like, I want to do English because at the very least I don't have to question my data. <laughs> <laughs> I can know what I'm dealing with. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was one of the reasons I, I went that route. Um, but I knew that I'd be looking at a lot of data. Um, but our program and the way a lot of programs are, is that you have to have some theoretical component like they're not going to let you just dive in without having some theoretical backup and so um i essentially like my dissertation is like four chapters of me having fun and then a theory chapter <laughs> so like Like that, that chapter kind of had to be there for, um, programmatic needs to be able to show that, look, I can apply this and it's important for the field in these theoretical concerns. Um, but if I had been given full, full choice, free reign, um, I would have just played with data and told people about the really cool patterns I was finding (laughs) and it was really cool and I was having fun with it. Um, but yeah, that was something that um, like to, I think up until the point I was in like an advanced syntax class, I don't think I could actually have told you what syntax covered. Cause syntax is one of those fields that it's like, I see what we're trying to do in morphology. I see what we're trying to study in semantics, but like beyond saying syntax is like word order and stuff. Like I wasn't sure what we were doing in syntax.
1: True. that's, that is, that's all it is.
0: Just word order and stuff. And so, <laughs> I think I really struggled with that until um, I, yeah. I really started reading more literature in the area. And so that's another thing, like, obviously, if you're at the grad level, you're just going to get exposed to a lot more literature in the field. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help guide your decision on what you should focus on. Um, if something, as you're reading in the literature, like if you realize that you don't understand a single paper written in this area, then don't do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there are there are still really really hard memories for me to wrap my head around in class of having to deal with like c command and things like that where i'm like but that's on the theory side of syntax anyway um i i I would never have focused in that area
1: by the way that's syntax stuff like the actual mechanics of it i was really good at that just thought it was
0: you know it's
1: completely stupid
0: One of those things where like, you give me a a pattern that I need to follow, I can follow it and I can do it. But the problem is, um, it's like, like in calculus, I can give you an answer. But if you ask me why it works, I fall apart. And so like, Mm. I can give you a tree, tell me what you want in terms of how things should be mapped out. And what to call each label and each node. And I can give you a beautiful mapped out tree, but as soon as you ask me to write about it in terms of why it matters, I'm like, oh no, they told me I had to map out this. <laughs> so I did. Um, and so, like, that's I think the part for theory that tends to fall apart for me on most theoretical approaches is I just can't discuss the behind the scenes stuff and the importance of it because I don't really get it. Mm it's like, I'm just having fun drawing trees. <laughs> I can split up a sentence. Um, but my, my point with that was that again, like in terms of starting grad school, I, um, besides knowing that I wasn't going to focus on phonetics or phonology, I had no idea how I was going to focus in an area when I didn't fully understand what syntax was. I thought semantics was, you know, formal logic essentially, um, and had You know, no other major areas that I could dive into, Um, and I really like morphology. So I probably would have picked morphology if they had like forced me day one to choose. Hmm. um, Just because I like the data sets,
1: yeah,
0: have fun with them, and why not? I liked them too. Um, And (laughs) so, like, that probably would have been my choice. But where I ended up going is solely because of the the coursework and the projects that I did um, as a result of those courses. And so that's how I ended up choosing. Nice. nice.
1: Yeah. So um, uh, to, to round out though, I did want to talk about the third for uh, those who are interested in experimentation. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Because it, it kind of branches all or it, it covers all areas of linguistics. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is the type of thing where, for example, um, in phonetics, um, something that's sometimes interesting to study is uh, voice onset timing. Um, because, uh, it's very easy to say, for example, that, you know, uh, Spanish, German and English and French all have a B they all do. Um, but they're different. Um, the same with P they're all different because of where the voicing happens. Because remember the things that we think of as just, you know, sounds are actually, um, uh, they're separate, um, gestures that occur in the mouth, right? Or in, in the mouth and the throat and things like that. So for example, with a B, right, what's happening is your two lips are coming together um, and making a complete occlusion of the, the, the pulmonic airstream mechanism, which is air coming out of the lungs. Um, so there's a complete closure at some point, um, and then a release. Uh that's the the explosion, it's the plosive part of it. Um and then there's also um the vibration of the vocal folds. And if you look at it, if you look at it at a very micro level, um, there is some overlap between the vibration of the vo- vocal folds and the release of the B. But um, exactly when that happens is interesting. So, in other words, if if they coincide exactly, that's an ideal B. But sometimes the voicing can start a little beforehand. Sometimes it can happen a little bit afterwards. Um, and, uh, and different languages will, uh, the voice onset time or VOT will happen at different times. Um, and like, um, and, and so that's, uh, what can give the impression, for example, that like, uh, if you're hearing a voiceless stop, uh, a voiceless unaspirated stop from another language, it's what gives you the impression that you are hearing an English B when you're not. Um, and this is why uh, there will also be variations in um, uh, Romanizations. So like uh, the city that we now call Beijing used to be written Peking with a P and a K. Um, and there's a reason, right? It's because it was a voiceless stop. But of course, when you pronounce it in English, we get this huge aspiration, which is not there. Um, and so that's, I think why they just started writing it would be to get it closer, Yeah. you know? Um, anyway, so that's the type of thing where, um, you can measure it quite specifically. And it's, it's the type of thing where it's like, you'll look at, you'll take like speakers of English, uh, speakers of Russian speakers of Thai, and you will use actual, you know, these, uh, these, uh, various types of equipment they have in a phonetics lab to measure the average voice onset time. Um, and see, well, okay, voice onset time for this language is here. It's here for this one. It's here for this one, and this is the result of that. So that's how like experimentation work in phonetics. But another thing, like um, uh, something like you know, semantics, w- would be like you know, you uh, record like anomalous sentences um, and figure out how people do it. That's that was where the Wug test came from which was, you know, this is a WUG. Now there are two of them. What do you call that, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's experimentation. Um, and, and you might think, especially nowadays, it's like, well, that's a really simple thing. Um, you know, I mean, what else would two of them be? But, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we obviously know that's the case. It's another thing to actually do a test and show this is what happens, yeah. you know? Um, and so if that's the type of thing you're interested in, again, it's like, figure out what area of linguistics interests you most, and then see what literature there has been about it, where the problems are, where the questions are. And in fact, in general, for all of these, uh, one of the um, one of the pieces of advice that always seems to be useful is read the relevant literature and see what questions there are, and if those questions have been answered. Because the places where the questions haven't been answered, that's that's essentially the cutting edge of research. That's that's where new stuff is going to happen. Um, either that, or looking back at old stuff where people thought the question was settled, and then you look at it and say, "Wait a minute, I don't think that's right," because of this extra, you know, data that I have, or because of this new, you know, analysis.
0: Um, Two things to build on that. One mm-hmm. is remember that a question can be, "Oh, how would this work in this language?" It doesn't have to be like. Like I think sometimes people forget that it's an it's not an omission in literature if they didn't study a language, because there's all of this, all of the languages that you that's could true. study. And so it's really more of a, oh, okay, I see papers on this language, this language, and this language, but I don't see one on this language. And so that is an area then to be filled. And so it's like, it's up to all the scholars to, to do that. And so that's definitely... Um, something to remember, because I think sometimes people think it has to be a really big question. It could be a very, in fact, small question to be like, well, you studied this language, but you didn't talk about the plural marker and I'm going to study the plural marker or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that that's one thing to build on that. The other thing is going back just briefly to experimentation. because This was something that surprised me that nobody prepared me for is that any form of experimentation, even if it's, you know, interviews, talking to people, Um, just recording how they say something you have to have at least in America IRB which is the institutional something board institutional board approval isn't it review review there we go thank you review board Um, I knew it stood for something Uh, you have to get their approval to be able to work with because it's considered subjects human subjects and I think that really shocked me because it's like I totally understood the need for it in fields, um, you know, like cognitive psychology, where you're going to be like, I don't know, zapping them or something. (laughs) And it's like, you know, like testing the, these responses, like that made sense to me about why you would need to get all of this, um, pre-approval, but even to talk to people about their language use, um, you do have to have approval through the university. Um, whatever procedures they have, um, and be able to say, here are the questions I'm asking. Here's why I'm asking them. Here's the age group I'm focusing on. um, And here's how I can show it's not going to harm anyone, essentially. Um, Or if there is some harm caused, here's why the benefits outweigh the potential risks um, for that harm. And it can feel really silly to have to write that up when really what you're doing is like, I want to ask them if they prefer sentence a or b and like literally there's like i see no potential harm ever but like you still have to write it up and have it on file and show that this is what you're doing um and so anyway all that is to say like i was shocked by that when i entered grad school because you know in undergrad you quiz your friends you know i'm gonna pull my friends here's 10 10, uh, sentences give me the first things that come to your mind and I'm going to write down the results and this is my class paper and like it's totally fine and then you get to grad school and it's like no that's not fine anymore
1: <laughs> see that's how professors get around IRB they assign their undergraduate
0: students to, to, oh, to do it data. yeah 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 <laughs> it's all good it's all good but, uh, but yeah that's that yeah. was a big shock for me because um, I mean and, and I will say there is a project where I had to like sort of pretend it hadn't been done yet and get the <laughs> approval and then um and, and then do the class paper but i was like i already collected my data uh, <laughs> and so um maybe. yeah I, I just didn't know because nobody had told me
1: yeah I, I i knew all about that and i had to do that for my uh experiment but it's like you know it, it does seem kind of silly because it's like well what was the experiment the experiment was, I went into the phonetics lab, we sat in front of a computer, I hit record, and then I essentially played a slideshow with a bunch of sentences. And those sentences were, um, say ban eight times, say ben eight times, say bean eight times, say bin eight times. These are the actual sentences. Mm-hmm. And then they actually said them eight times. So it 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 got a it it certainly got a little tedious, but it's like that was that was the experiment. But I I absolutely had had to get, and they had to sign it and everything because it's like if you didn't, then it's just well. Yeah,
0: Mm. and so um, that is especially important for um, again the the specific question being interested in any kind of field work, even if you're not out in the field. If you even talk to a speaker about like how they you know how would you naturally put the sentence together or whatever like if you have a quote informant you'll you'll need to make sure you you think and ask questions, ask questions and find out what does our university require for me to be able to speak to you know a native speaker of this language and use the information in a paper.
1: Yeah I think the the only other thing that we haven't touched on is uh, if you, are interested in, uh, language documentation specifically, it's something that's always useful because of course, you know, more data
0: Mm -hmm. works.
1: It's good for everybody. Um, but it's not the type of thing that you just get to do. (laughs) So like really research what university uh, would actually support that and who you would need to talk to and, you know, like you also don't just like get to choose a language and be like, I want to go to this area of the world and document something there. It's usually like some professors already working on that language. And so they will allow you to do some other things on it as well. And it may be one that you weren't really interested in or weren't aware of beforehand.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that is a very good point. And also for anyone who um, does go that route, and um, you know they are able to figure out what language they're going to focus on, and they want to, you know, actually work in the field. Which again, like the the question in particular from this morning was, I realize I'm not going to work in the field, but for anyone listening who's like, but I want to, um, if you do that, especially at the PhD level, and you're you're out in the field, um, just as a friendly forewarning, your degree is gonna take longer than you think it's gonna take. Um, Because field work itself, um, depending on how long you're in the field, some people, you know, are there for a shorter time, but a lot of the people I know who ended up doing field work were there for like a year (laughs) of their career. And that was a year of just collecting data. That wasn't the time, you know, like once they came back, the actual write up and the process still had to go. So it was essentially, an added year and then on top of that a lot of times it just takes longer than you may think to do that full write-up of finding the examples coming through your data figuring out um, how to write about it and what to use to show how the language works so if that is an area you're interested in like serious hats off because yes more data for the field um, it, I think, benefits the entire field if you can describe any aspect of a language that isn't currently published, um, or even if it is published, just to show more examples. Um, mm. I honestly think that that expands um, so much about the field, and I think it's amazing, but it is a heck of a, a an area to go into in terms of life planning and yeah. degree planning and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah.
0: That's tough.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that was fun, though. I still remember a lot about moral. That was a good language.
0: Mine was Café Nono. And so that was the language I did in my field methods class. Well, and it was one that our professor didn't even know anything about. It was like he just happened to know a speaker.
1: So like, tell me about it.
0: Oh, uh, well, <laughs> one of the funniest things. Like, I don't remember all the things about it you remember way more than I do in details and you know this. Okay. Um, But one of the things was that we kind of, we knew there was a stress system, but quite by accident, we discovered there was not just stress, but there was tone as well, but only in specific sets of words. And so it's almost like tone only mattered where it made a meaning distinction. Right. Mm. And (laughs) There's one day in class, and our speaker was just the sweetest kind of soul. Um, he was um, a man from Ethiopia, and um, just so wonderful in the classroom, and you know, so patient as we were trying to, you know, like elicit sen- sentences and everything. Uh, and like, what we would often do is try to make guesses, right? Like, oh, so is this how you would say this? Or does this mm-hmm. sound okay? Like, would you accept this as a sentence? And we would try to put our own sentences together to see if we were understanding how the language was working well enough to be able to actually start doing stuff with it. And so this one day in class, like we you know one of the students had repeated something or said, could, could it be said this way or whatever, and like (laughs) you could tell he was like trying so hard not to laugh slash also was super embarrassed so we were like something just got said and we're not sure what just got said but it's something where like the speaker's (laughs) like super uncomfortable and like nope you can't say it that way and it turns out i think it was like the word for 10. Mm -hmm. um, if you say it with the wrong tonal melody on the stressed syllable it was the word for penis (laughs) and so like he was horrified right like that he was going to have to explain this is what it means to like a room of people um and so um anyway that was that was one of the things but yeah I was looking at locative markers (laughs) and how they were used in sentences versus questions because yeah and
1: like what were they were the placement was were they suffixes were they prefixes OK, so they were prefixes, mm-hmm. like they were case prefixes?
0: Yes and no, but it, it was like the cases, like the locative would work differently. And that's why I was looking at that.
1: I mean, we're but semantically I don't remember it exactly. But, um, but like it was an actual prefix.
0: Right, um, uncertain. But like it cool? was like, it was very cool. But I can't remember the exact circumstances. It was something about the questions work differently than the statements and i want to say they were prefixes in questions but not in statements but like i'd have to look at my data and remind myself i'm just saying like i remember i was looking at that
1: there was a there were two inessive cases in this language one was a prefix and one was a suffix and there was also a pretension case that was also a suffix it was clearly related so like hmm, all the words i can think of aren't you know good because they're people i need i don't remember the word for house
0: you remember so much more i'm like i'm pretty sure that marker was ach but like that's all i can remember and like the fact that you can remember all of these other things
1: okay well i'll just say so like damala is the word for camel yeah all right so then um idamala would be in the camel but one type and then damalano would be in the camel but another Type of inessive. And then there was Namalan, which is against the camel or on it, right?
0: Your brain fascinates me that you can remember all this. But this yeah. is great. This is great. I love it.
1: And so that was that was so cool because I was trying to figure out. So both of them, like you would say, both of them, so like idamala and namalano meant in the camel, right? Mm. And so then I was working with you know things where it actually made sense, like the word for box or so on. And finally he was like talking about a truck. Um, and, uh, Trambili, Trambili is, uh, and it was a borrowing obviously, uh, but it was like a Trambili We'd, would be in the truck, but inside of it with the doors closed Oh. and uh, Trambilano would be in the back of the truck. Okay. And so it was, whether it was open or not, whether you were completely enclosed or not.
0: And so if you were in the front of the truck, but just happened to have all the doors open, would you use the other one?
1: I didn't get that far. Mm. That would have been that, an that interesting question. The first
0: question that popped in my mind was what happens if you're sitting inside with all the doors open on a hot day?
1: My guess would be no because of the way that trucks are. And mm. it would just be, it would make so much more, it would be so obvious that you meant in the back of the truck. Oh, gotcha. And so it wouldn't gotcha. be very cooperative, I guess, to use it that way. But that's an interesting question. Mm. But yeah. But to go
0: the, back and find a speaker.
1: But that was also the one where there was a uh, uh, harmony. Mm. Uh, high low harmony so and there was with that prefix so um you know edamala because ah is low but uh if it was i don't know would use the word for man it would be equal because it was high gotcha right and then there was also a k that showed k that showed up Mm -hmm. for words that begin with a vowel except for certain of them it was an s so engath was tooth Mm -hmm. and senga in the tooth
0: nice but also like as we're talking about this, I realized that for anybody who's interested in working with um, anything like field work, where even if you know you're not gonna be like in the field doing language documentation to remember that like these features we're talking about, again, like super small, but like if you're fascinated by it, then you're gonna (laughs) have fun writing about it and you're gonna have fun getting examples about it. And so it's like, remember that you don't have to be super big with your ideas sometimes it's like these little things where you think oh maybe that should only be like a side note to my project but it could actually be the driving force of the entire project Mm -hmm. like eliciting all these examples for in this versus in that versus like what are the meaning differences are there any words where it's like totally interchangeable because you know it can't be open air in something you know like yeah So the camel ate cud and so you would say the cud is in the camel and it's Mm -hmm. really it can't be open air so (laughs) do they allow them to be used interchangeably or is it like no you could never say in the camel in this other inessive case so anyway all that is to say like you could like really find a very cool feature that you find cool and if you find it cool then then there's something good about it to focus on yeah
1: also that ks distinction which i never was able to get a handle on yeah. Yeah.
0: I was really horrible at, at pronouncing things and coffee. No, no. Yeah.
1: It's really bizarre, too, because when would you say something is in a tooth? You know, it's a cavity. Uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Or also maybe stuck between your teeth. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's a, a good one. Yeah, it's really um, whenever you read linguistics papers and you see some of the sentences they have like you can have some fun being like, why in the world did anyone ever ask how you said this to get, you know, like this particular sentence, like who would say that? Um, And then to find out that, you know, it it makes sense if you had seen the full data set or the full conversation or whatever, but you don't, you don't, you just see the one example. Um, But you can get really fun examples like, Mm -hmm. hey, look in the tooth. And then the people reading it are going to be like, (laughs)
1: Why? Why
0: did you ask this question? Or, you know, how did that come up? Um, And it may have been that in class that day, someone had spinach stuck in their teeth. And and so it it became a, how would you say that? You know? Wow. Yeah, that was, i say that was one of the harder classes for me because, you know, me and hearing things and then having to...
1: (laughs) yeah that was figured out that way that was when i missed i missed uh i missed not being able to work with that language it was too bad mm-hmm. and i miss i miss eliaser julima who was our who was our, our fearless consultant who um as far as i could tell worked 24 hours a day
0: <laughs> <laughs> now i always think it's really cool because i know like um i happen to be able to to work with that you know the class. The year that I took it, um, but then you know, other years they did more well-documented languages, and so then they students in those classes sometimes struggled because they needed to figure out what to write about um, that would complement the research. So they ended up having to do research plus the you know, the work they were doing in class to elicit data from from the speaker. And um, I felt very fortunate that I took it in a year where there was like nothing that we could research in the language, Um, our professor didn't know it. So he was like experiencing it for the first time as well, like as we were. Um, And so like the, which is how you know the stress versus tone slash both working together debate was an entire day where we then just kept asking more words and questions and could you say it this way, what about this. Um, because our professor was like, no, there's no tone. But then we were like, well, then what's the difference between these two words and how we're saying it and how he's saying it. And so anyway, it became this really big debate and it was it was kind of fun. Um, but again, that was because there was like nothing written, um, written linguistically about the language. And so we were like discovering it and that was a really fun process. Um, but if you're working with a language that is written about, you then have to do the, the two-parter. see see what we already know about it and figure out where we can go from there Um, but that was really exciting but what was terrifying Mm -hmm. about that class was you go the entire semester and there's no grades and then at the end of the semester you submit a final paper and that's your entire grade that's how it works in a lot of grad classes right but like this one in particular because you're just swimming in data like it feels like where's this gonna go And on the very last day of class, we had presentations where we needed to present what we found and what we wrote about. And so we're like legit last day of class. And one of the students um, went early on in the class session and presented what they had done. And the professor was just like, no, I'm not gonna let you submit a paper on that. And the rest of us are like then like ashen faced because we're like, last day of class to find out all your work now has to be redone and like <laughs> what do you do and so then everybody was afraid to present after that because they were like
1: hey, I don't, wow is this,
0: okay you know like it was terrifying but it was like but yeah and so the student ended up having to get an extension to like redo my the whole paper um that's incredible uh, grad school it's it's something, man, it's a ride. Um, but yeah, it was It was just like one of those moments where it's like your entire heart stops. Like it's just, and the whole class felt it. It was, oh, that was that was scary. Man. But yeah, it that was, that was scary.
1: What do you think? Good note to end on?
0: <laughs> the terrifying story. <laughs> grad school isn't all bad though. Okay, but we've had those discussions before. We both enjoyed our grad school experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so for anyone listening still, um, we hope that that helps you understand that there's no one path or no one way to pick what area you're going to end up focusing on. Um, And honestly, how you find it, the the goal really at the end of the day is make sure that it's something you enjoy because you're going to be writing a lot about it. And David did not enjoy his paper, which is probably why he didn't put his heart and soul into it the first time around.
1: Hey, I proved what I said to prove,
0: but you got it done, but like, it's not an experience that you were like going to be super happy about the rest of your life. It's more like, I just did it and I did it. And now I can move on mm-hmm. versus mine. is like, I still want to tell you about quotatives and I still like write examples. And you I never still, told me, well, we can have that discussion later. Uh, you
1: better. How long have I known you?
0: <laughs> just a, a short while. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you are all having a wonderful start to 2022. And we will see you soon in a live stream. In the meantime.
1: Oh, stay grammar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Say it with confidence. (laughs) Stay grammar. Right on. Bye, everybody.